0: Let's pray to him that as we open the word, we'd open our lives and put them into his hands. Lord, that's our prayer to you today. Once again, we pray with gratitude for the ways in which you have held us in the storm, with repentance for the ways in which we've turned away from you time and again, with a request that you would open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that is, your word is proclaimed and the scriptures are read, we would hear and receive with faith what you speak to us today. Amen. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is gonna be good. Okay, good, I heard you say it, now I believe it. Not my sermon, I don't have a sermon His word, that's my sermon, his word. I don't have anything to offer. He's the one that's making the offer. The only thing I have to offer is the same thing you have to offer, myself. It was a song that I heard often, as I recall, in the the old westerns that really predated my time, but you'd find them on TV playing over and over when I was a kid. Kind of corny westerns. The guy in the jail cell with the tin cup and he's rattling it against the bars. Nobody knows the trouble I see. <laughs> Nobody knows the sorrow. I mean, it's almost comical to hear it, right? It's kind of corny and funny. And there's old, I don't know, Sheriff Coffee. Remember Sheriff Coffee? I don't know, did they play Bonanza in the Philippines? Bonanza was big here in its day. <laughs> Sheriff Coffey, Carson City. Have a guy in the jail there, nobody knows it. Now, Sheriff Coffey was a good guy, but I remember many an episode where there'd be somebody in the in the jail there and it was a crime they didn't commit. Some dastardly person had framed them and Sheriff Coffey kinda had the idea of it, but he'd say to Ben Cartwright or something, well, Ben, I gotta follow the law. And so Ben and the boys would, you know, find a way to set justice right. Or sometimes the person in the jail cell, they had done what they were there imprisoned for. But they were a good guy who had done the wrong thing for the right cause, but in the wrong way. And Ben and the boys were going to set that right too. And then every now and then there was just some really black Bart that was in there who had done every bad thing and deserved to be in there. But the ones who would be singing that song, you know, it was kind of a woe is me moment. And so the song itself is sort of comical in my mind. But recently I heard it sung again. And you know, it's a, it's a slave spiritual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. I heard it sung sincerely and earnestly. In fact, it was sung in a duet with Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, another slave spiritual. It was beautiful. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen like Jesus. He knows you. He knows what you've gone through. Sometimes the storm that we are in is a storm of our own making. And all of us have that kind of experience. Sometimes we were trying to do the right thing, but we went about it the wrong way. And then sometimes... It's the storm like we talked about when we began this sermon series with the book of Job, a storm in which the person at the center who is suffering all these things has no fault of their own in the process. It's not to say that Job or any other human being other than Jesus himself could ever say, I've never done anything wrong, but God himself recognizes that there are times in our lives where we are suffering something and it isn't through our fault, and in fact, God not only recognizes, but advises us that there are times in our lives where if we are following him, we are going to face the storm precisely because we're doing the right thing. And doing the right thing in a backwards world puts you at odds with the way of that world. As we look at the Apostle Paul today, in prison, we look at a person who is suffering not because he's doing the wrong thing, but because he's doing the right one. And I want to understand, I want to understand better how Paul has the extraordinary peace and patience that he has in the midst of that kind of persecution because I want to follow Christ the way Paul did. In fact, I think if Paul were here right now, he'd say, I want you to follow even better. But nevertheless, Paul did say to the Philippians, the things that you have heard and seen and learned and received in me, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That's not Paul bragging, that's Paul promising, not on the basis of his strength, but on the basis of God's. And so that promise is to you. If you also, if you and I can look at Paul and understand something of his patience in the worst of moments, in the place of prison, then you and I can understand how it is that God not only knows the trouble that we've seen, but he's already overcome it. And while his compassion is so comforting to us, it's also the power of his passion that can give us purpose and empower us in the process of fulfilling our mission. The, the Apostle Paul is best known to us in two ways through the Bible. One is in the book of Acts. He's one of the main characters in the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by Paul's missionary partner, Luke, the physician. There were a number of people that Paul partnered with throughout his life. It's a great reminder that God does not call us to be the Lone Ranger, speaking of corny westerns. And even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. I don't the Probably a very, uh, what do they call that now? Problematic. (laughs) But in any case, we're not supposed to be alone. Not only do we have Jesus with us, but in Christ, we are to be connected with the body of Christ. There's partnerships. So Luke wrote about Not only Paul, but Peter and others in the early church. And in the book of Acts, we get a lot of the incidents of Paul's life. And in fact, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts in focus today, and particularly in chapters 23 through 26. But the other major bulk of Paul's voice to us from the scriptures, inspired by the Spirit, are his letters, epistles, fancy term for it. The Apostle Paul's epistolary ministry is nothing more than his writing letters. What a wonderful thing to think that your communication with other people in the body of Christ, when it is submitted to the Spirit, becomes a ministry. In fact, that's what ministry is, right? It's our connections to one another inspired by the Spirit. And so Paul wrote to the early church. He wrote a lot. And so that ministry was both prolific and powerfully influential. In fact, half the book or half the New Testament is composed Of books or letters from Paul. And a number of these are known as prison epistles. In other words, Paul wrote them while he was in jail, while he was in prison, sometimes in lengthy periods of time. In fact, what we're going to be looking at today is Paul spending years in prison. Now, that's one thing to hear, but I want you to think about that. Years in prison. Early in my life, one of the first formal uh, modes of ministry that I engaged in is one that is still dear to my heart. I'm looking over here at Sister Tammy. She knows where I'm going with this because she's our missions director and she and I have talked many times about how eager we are now that COVID recedes that we might be able to enter into incarcerated spaces. Not not that we're eager to be jailed, but that we want to reach those who are in jail Uh, because Jesus wants to reach those that are in jail. When I was involved in uh, ministry to incarcerated youth in the, uh, the penal system here in Los Angeles County, what I found was that while we intended to bring Jesus into the jail to people, we, we found Jesus in jail. Jesus said, when you, when you come to someone who's a prisoner in my name, you're coming to me. So many of us can easily forget those who are incarcerated. But we shouldn't because God never does. Now there are people that are there for things that they've done and there are people that shouldn't be there because sometimes the system fails. But the point is whether people belong to be there or not, that's a big concern. But nevertheless, there is a message of the Lord to them just like there's a message to you and I. I mean, some people in jail don't belong there, and some people outside of jail do belong there. Not everybody that's in jail should be, and not everybody that's free should be. But everybody has gone astray. All we like sheep have sinned and gone astray, right? But sometimes there are situations where people face imprisonment, and there's no righteous reason for it, but it becomes a righteous ministry. Paul isn't the only person who has written letters from jail that became messages of hope and beacons of wisdom. Even Martin Luther King Jr. is famous for some of the writings that he made while he was jailed unfairly and unrighteously simply because he was following the call of God to face off against the opposition to the civil rights movement and the extraordinary kinds of of prejudice that dominated uh, the society of his day. Sometimes standing up for the truth puts you in trouble, but God is there with you. Paul faced repeated incarceration, and he knew he was going to. As he traveled the ancient world, as he spread the gospel of the Christian faith, this was in an era when Christians were heavily persecuted, basically from all sides, from the Roman authorities from other uh, faith cultures that they encountered, and even from their own root bed of Jewish origin. The book of Acts in the section that we're looking at, 23 to 26 particularly, describes a period when Paul spends over two years imprisoned in a place called the Praetorium. Now, it's followed by further imprisonment even beyond that, so we're just looking at a segment of Paul's prison time. The praetorium is the governor's complex. It comes from a Latin term that initially referred actually to a general's compound uh, on a military campaign, but it came to refer to the leader's compound. And so where a governor of Rome would be uh, ruling over an outpost, um, uh, an occupied territory, such as Palestinia of that time, that governor would have not only a governor's mansion, if you will, but there would be a guard that was there to protect the governor and that complex and the rule of law, as Rome saw it, at least, and there would need to be a place of jail, you know, an an imprisoned space so that anybody that was causing conflict or breaking the law could be held there and tried by that governor. Paul is imprisoned in that praetorium, even though he has not committed any crime, even according to the Roman law, and we're going to see that in the text. Now, Paul could be sitting there going, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Oh, I'm serving Jesus. Look at me, suffering for the Lord. But he didn't have any of that kind of attitude. In fact, he comes off as enthusiastic, joyous, and utterly at peace. Make no mistake, jail is not a pleasant place. But jail in the first century A.D., in Roman outposts, was a nightmare, a real risk to life and limb, a place of pestilence and stink. There were not considerations for human rights and human right violations that we would have even in our contemporary era. You would be having to look over your shoulder at all times. There was graft among the jailers. And nobody particularly cared what happened to prisoners. And Paul was an outstanding person. In his life, growing up, I would imagine that Paul would never have expected that he would land in a situation like that. He was highly educated. Remember, he was very devout in his Jewish origins, even self-righteous until the Lord pushed him down in order to raise him up. And Paul became a man of humility. But he probably never would have expected in his early days that one of the most common experiences of his life would be being arrested, being beaten by authorities, standing trial. And yet in the midst of this, Paul has this extraordinary perspective. Not just patience, but purpose. Will you say that? Patience and purpose. Say it. Patience and purpose. The two go hand in hand. When you know what you're doing and why you're going through it, you can be patient in the process because you see the goal. When you don't know what the goal is, you become agitated and distressed. But also, without patience, you may lose sight of purpose. So they feed into each other because they come from the Lord. Rather than despairing, Paul sees a purpose, an opportunity to demonstrate patient faith and to witness for the Lord. Remember, the last few messages in this series, that's what we've been talking about. Jesus said, I will give you the power by the Spirit to be my witnesses, my martyrea in Greek, my martyrs, which simply means my witnesses, not the people who go, woe is me, but the people who say, great is God. And when you're saying that in jail, When you're saying that, when you are a victim, but your idea of yourself is not a victim, but a victor, more than conquerors in Christ, people begin to notice. It makes a difference. It's a powerful message. Not everybody is going to believe it. We'll see that too. But nobody can deny the power of it. The power of patience and purpose and faith. In this section, we're going to be looking at a broad section, but not a lot of text. Somebody's breathing a sigh of relief there. I want to see some of the stages that Paul goes through in this process and help you and I to apply them to a place of practical application in our life. He's unfairly arrested in Acts 23 under a Roman arrest. He's unreasonably imprisoned. There's no justification for what they are doing. He comes to trial before the governor at that time, Felix, He doesn't find justice there. And the governor that succeeds Felix Festus also does not recognize who Paul really is or the God that Paul is really serving, even though he should. And finally, Paul has this opportunity to stand in exactly the position that Jesus describes in the Gospels, to stand before rulers and authorities and not to defend himself, but to present Christ. He's unashamed of the gospel. Just like Paul had written to the Romans, Paul demonstrates to these Roman rulers, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In other words, to everybody. So how does he end up in this situation? Around the mid to late 50s AD. So this is you know, somewhere around 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul has now made three major missionary journeys. You can read about them in the book of Acts. He mentions them at various places in his letters. This is the end of his third, where he's been through this uh, eastern area of the Mediterranean, basically from the central Mediterranean uh, and the Aegean back to the Holy Land, to Palestine of his day. He is eager to bring this journey to its conclusion at a certain timeline. And do you know what? That timeline is Pentecost. That festival is still occurring annually, even as we honor and recognize it annually. And Paul wants to get back. Part of it has to do with the time of year, late spring, early summer, like where we are right now. You can kind of feel it in the air. It's a little warm in here. That's just the spirit moving also because he's eager to bring this offering that he's been collecting. Do you remember last year? I'm gonna ask you to go back in your mind now for those of you that are part of PCF or if you've read the book of Romans, you might realize this anyway, how we talked about how Paul was writing to the Romans and describing how he was collecting offerings from the Ephesians, from everywhere that he went, collecting monies from these primarily Gentile believers to bring back to the mother church in Jerusalem composed primarily of Jewish believers, many of whom were indigent or very poor. And he wanted to show this cross-cultural, multi love inspired by God and evidence not just with words, but with money. Say, we wanna help put clothes on your back and food on your table. The whole church out there is sending love your way. And so Paul was eager to get back to Jerusalem and to do that, and he was eager to get back on the road again. Is that Willie Nelson on the road again? I don't remember who sings that. I've got all the country western songs coming out today. He wants to get on the road because he wants to go to the far end. It goes off the map here. He wants to go all the way to the end of the Mediterranean to the Iberian Peninsula or what we would call today Spain and Portugal. That's the uttermost parts of the world. Remember what Jesus had said? You will receive power to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Paul's following that. I want to get to the end of the world. I want to get to the places that haven't heard yet and let them know. And he hasn't even visited Rome yet. He wrote to them and said, I'm going to come to you after I drop off your gift in Jerusalem. Then I'm going to come your way because I'm going to pass you. Rome's about central Mediterranean. I'm going to come to Rome. I'm going to greet you, preach to you, and then you're going to help fund me all the way to Spain. He's a good missionary. He knows how to fundraise. I'm going to need your support in order to get there. That's his plan. There is a problem. And the problem is people don't like him. People still don't like Paul. It's funny to me, even in Christian scholarly circles, there are few people as controversial as Paul. Jesus gets a lot more love than Paul does. Paul is arrogant, say these scholars. Paul doesn't understand Jesus, say these scholars. I'll bet Jesus is surprised to hear that. Because I think Jesus and Paul... We're pretty close. Paul wasn't doing what Paul wanted to do. Paul was following the call of Jesus. And in doing that, he had become persona non grata, an unwelcome person in almost every other group that was empowered in any way in his society. The religious elite of his own ethnic clan, the Jewish people, were generally opposed to him, because he would go to the synagogue first everywhere he went throughout the Roman Empire. And there would usually be a few followers, but a lot of opposition from his own people. And especially from the Jewish religious authorities in Jerusalem, the, the conceptual capital of, the, of that era for them. The Roman leaders considered him kind of a you know, foolish curiosity. Remember what Paul said, that the gospel is offensive to Jewish people and it's a joke to these Gentile people, right? So they look at him as something of a joke, but when he creates problems through his advocacy for Christ, then they find that, hey, this guy's a problem. It's fine and well to laugh at what he's saying, but we don't like what he's doing. And the pagan partisans, wherever he went throughout the pagan Gentile world, also didn't like him. Remember the people of Ephesus? Great is Artemis of Ephesus, Diana, the goddess that they worshiped. We don't like Paul because he's talking about Jesus and we're all about Diana. Not only did they have that pagan worship, but that made money for them. They made idols and sold them all over the realm. And so they didn't like Paul. Nobody liked Paul. There were people that liked Paul. There were people that loved Paul. But there were a lot of persecutors, Jewish people, Gentile people, and Roman rulers are all stacking up against Paul. And they would, even in the circle of Christians, dislike Paul. As I said, even today, there are theologians that want to critique him. In Paul's day, there were people that said, oh, Paul calls himself an apostle, but we've, we've gone through more than he has. We've suffered more than he has. Nobody knows how much we've suffered for Jesus. And so at one point, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, you know, I don't talk that way. These people who brag about what great apostles they are, pfft, I'm not into that. But you seem to be really impressed with that. So if you're going to force me into that mode, then I will go ahead and brag. I'm an idiot to do it. It's crazy foolishness, but if that's what you want, fine. They say they've suffered. They say that they are servants of Christ. Okay, as crazy and out of my mind as I am to go this way, if that's what you're looking for, let me just put it out there. I've worked harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death, not once, not twice, but again and again. Five times I received 39 lashes from Jewish authorities. Three times I was beaten with rods. Beaten with rods. Imagine somebody with a bat beating you. Now imagine having that happen three different times in your life. And they're not beating you to punish you. They're beating you to kill you. I was pelted with stones. Not pebbles, rocks. Two-handed Three times, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Try that. Try a day and a half in the open sea. Better yet, don't. Because in all likelihood, you won't live. I remember, you remember the story I shared when we were, Hazel and I were in the Philippines. We were out there in that little boat trying to get back to to uh, Iloilo. And the the engine, the motor ran out. Boy, and that's not even as open of a sea as Paul was probably in. It was open enough for me. Wide open. I began to envision the sharks circling. They're there. You know they are. A day and a half in the open sea. If you do survive, you'll never forget it. I've been constantly on the move. Why? Because people are constantly trying to kill me. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. It almost becomes a country western song. I've suffered for y'all everywhere I go. Danger from false believers. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul knew the reality of that. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. He's not saying, I've had those nights where I didn't get enough sleep last night. He's saying, I've gone days without sleeping. That can kill you. In fact, it will. If you go long enough without sleep. There were times when he was in jail where you couldn't sleep or they wouldn't let you. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, here's what he puts. This... this, this comforts my heart and humbles me and challenges me. He's speaking here as a pastor. He says, the biggest burden I've faced is I daily bear the pressure of my concern for all the flock, for the churches. It's like a parent saying, on top of it all, I've got my kids on my heart. My brothers and sisters are in my heart. And so Paul says, you know, if If you're going to force me to boast, I'm going to boast about the things that show my weakness. Because he goes on to say, those are the things that show me God's greatness. He says to me, my grace is sufficient for you because my power, says the Lord, is made perfect in your weakness. So I'm going to boast all the more gladly, not about my bona fides, my good faith credentials as a great apostle, but about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is the power of purpose. That is the power of patience. That is the power of witness. That's why, for Christ's sake, Paul says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. He's not being glib. He's saying the same thing that James says. I count it all joy because when I'm weak, he is strong in me, and then I can show people who he is. His whole life is about, I want people to see Christ in me, the hope of glory. I want you, says Paul to know and to see and to show that truth as well. So what Paul knows is, even though he is driving to Jerusalem, I don't mean in a car, but I mean he's got a single-minded focus, much like Jesus did. The scripture says, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And what did Jesus know? In Jerusalem, I die. And what did Paul know? He didn't know, but what he knew was, in Jerusalem, I face challenge and the risk of death. A volatile situation, potentially, probably hostile to him and his cause. And Paul's not a fool. He had a savvy understanding of his times and the people in them. He operated in an anointed awareness. The Holy Spirit was showing Paul things all the time, just like he will to you. Because Paul was listening, Paul responded. But there were also prophetic warnings through the body of Christ about the dangers that Paul faced ahead. Luke writes about this. Luke is with Paul when this is happening. This is a first-person account. This is not just a story; it's history. It happened. Paul, uh, excuse me. Luke says we reached Caesarea. This is Caesarea Maritima, by the way. You can go to it. Some of you have been there. In fact, the Roman ruins are still there. I've stood in that uh, in that amphitheater that Rome built. You can see portions of the Roman aqueduct still there. Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, in Israel. They go there. From there, they're going to travel south to Jerusalem. They say go up to Jerusalem because it's going to be rising up into the hills. But on their way, they've landed. They've come onto the the shore. They're in Caesarea. There's a Christian prophet there named Agabus. He, one evening or one gathering, comes and takes Paul's belt and wraps it around and binds him and says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. By the way, what's happening here? This is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a prophetic awareness granted by God's Spirit, and there is no difference between that happening 2,000 years ago and how it happens today. The Holy Spirit still speaks. And where there are people that are filled by the Spirit and are guided by the Word and are connected to the Lord in His body, the Spirit will move in this way. And it isn't always words of encouragement, although there is encouragement in this Word. But it's, it's putting a plain face on the reality. Paul, you are going to be jailed by Gentiles, you know, faced with opposition from Jewish leaders and jailed by Gentiles in Jerusalem. And everybody there is pleading, Paul, don't go, don't go. Stop, you, can, you don't have to go. And Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? That may be a country western song too. But it makes me think of Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus. We looked at it a few weeks ago, saying, why are you worried? Because this is part of the plan. I'm not only ready to be bound in Jerusalem, I'm ready to die in Jerusalem. If that's what God has for me, if that's where following the call of Christ is taking me. So when we did, we could not dissuade him, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. Sounds like resignation, right? Well, God help you. <laughs> I don't know, Paul. God help you. But you know what Paul knows? God will help him. Even if he dies, yet he will live. Sometimes when you are following the call of the Lord to you, there may be people around you who just say, "Well, God help you." And your assurance can be if you've heard the call correctly and you're following it, he will. Here's another assurance even if you haven't always followed him, the promise of Jesus to you and I today is, if you'll follow me, I'll help you. I'll help you follow me. Just be willing. Paul wants the Lord's will to be done. So, despite the warning of Agabus, Paul continues on to Jerusalem. He is arrested, unfairly, and then unreasonably imprisoned. First, there are these Jewish leaders who who, uh, caused the crowd to to rise up against Paul as an angry mob until finally a Roman commander intercedes, arrests him just to stop the problem. Even though there's not really any purpose for Paul to be arrested, Paul didn't cause it. So he's jailed and he goes to face trial before the Roman governor Felix. Now that's actually saving Paul's life because the Jewish people were determined to kill him secretly and illegally. There were plots against him. So even though it seems bad, it's good. At least it's keeping Paul alive and what Paul knows is God is fulfilling his purpose. God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So he's jailed and he faces trial before the Roman governor Felix. Now, Paul comes in to speak with Felix many times, and Felix is actually well acquainted with the way. In other words, Felix knows about Jesus. He knows about Christians. He knows the gospel. Why is he continuing to meet with Paul? Because he also knows the law, and he ought to know well enough that Paul doesn't even deserve to be imprisoned. He wants money. He wants a bribe. He's like, you know, who can set you free? You're a friend here for a price. He doesn't say it. He's waiting for Paul to cue into it. Well, keep waiting. Because that's not Paul's purpose. Paul isn't trying to get free. What, what Felix doesn't know is Paul wants Felix to be free. Felix doesn't know he's imprisoned. Paul doesn't care that he is because Paul's already free in Christ. So Paul is fulfilling a purpose and Felix is losing an opportunity. Felix comes with his wife Drusilla. Surprised she's Jewish. No wonder Felix is aware of the scriptures. And of the truth. You can be very close to this word and not have the truth in you. You can be very close to the message of the Lord and miss an opportunity. Don't let that happen to you. Felix sends for Paul, and then what does Paul start to talk about? Righteousness, self control, and the judgment to come. Hey, that's part of the gospel. You know why that doesn't get preached in churches more? because people don't like those messages. I want the message about how God will never let me go through it all. But God is saying, I'm never going to let go of you and I'm never going to stop refining you until you are perfect. And all that unrighteousness that is in you and it's in you like it's in me, I want it out of you. I'm going to burn it out of you. I'm going to test and try you until you are refined like gold. Felix says, uh, well, let's talk tomorrow. (laughs) I'm looking for a different kind of gold, the gold you pay me. I'm looking for some other value or treasure because he doesn't know the value and treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And so he says, you can go, and when I find it convenient, I will send for you. And two years passed that way. What was Paul thinking during that time? God, how long are you going to leave me in this situation? I don't think so. I think what Paul was thinking, as eager as he was to go to Rome, as eager as he was to go to Spain, he was mostly eager for God's will. And what he figured is if you need me to get to Rome, you'll get me there. If you want me in Spain, I'll be there. But if you want me here, here I am. Use me, Lord. Use me right here in this jail cell. And he does. Two years pass a new governor comes. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Portius Festus. In this time, Felix wanted to curry favor with the Jewish leaders so he had left Paul in prison. Now Portius Festus is going to be the one that Paul has to give his testimony to. And these Jewish leaders are begging Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem. They figure, now we've got an opportunity. We want to bring him back and there's a plot to kill him once again. But Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. This is a court of law, right? So the law says, as a citizen, I can appeal to the Supreme Court. Not the language they used, but so we can understand. He's saying, I'm going to appeal to Caesar, the highest court in the land, the highest imperial court. He has the privilege and the legal right to do that, and it's inviolable. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, that's going to take time to accomplish. And in the meantime... Another regional leader comes. I won't go into the details of all these regional leaders. Think of it as a neighboring governor, if you will, although this is someone who is actually uh, affiliated with and of the Jewish ethnicity. And so this is somebody who should be even more familiar with Paul's message and the scriptures that Paul is appealing to and the God that Paul is witnessing to. This is King Agrippa. He is one of the Herodians and his wife, Bernice. They come to Caesarea. It's a, uh, I guess, a diplomatic visit or I don't know, the, the, the hoity-toity are schmoozing together. And Festus says, you know, I, I've got this guy, Paul. You should hear this dude. I, I'd be interested to get your take on it. What should I do in this situation? He, he's appealing to Caesar. There's not really a good legal basis for it. Why don't you come and hear him? So uh, maybe it's quasi-entertainment. Maybe it's a little bit of, you know, cover our backsides here and figure out how we're going to process this. But they bring Paul to witness before them because we've got to calculate some kind of legal charge. They don't even know how to send him up the chain because it's like, what do we say he's convicted or, yeah, convicted of? What are we we accusing him of? Paul isn't that concerned with all of that. Paul comes and says, King Agrippa, glad to see you. You've got a point of reference for what I'm talking about. I know you. I know that you're aware of this faith. And in fact, you've been relatively uh, magnanimous towards it. And so this is a great opportunity because you know about our religious customs. You know about the partisanship that divides us. And so Paul is laying the groundwork for telling his story. He goes on to describe that extraordinary experience. We don't have time to talk about it today, but you can read about it in the book of Acts and elsewhere, where he encountered the risen Christ, the the Jesus that you and I can encounter. There's only one Jesus, but what I mean by that is This happens after Jesus has ascended to the Father. He's not only resurrected, but he's ascended. And yet, Paul has an encounter with him. And where is Paul going? He's going to Damascus to do what? To persecute Christians, to imprison them, to kill them. The very kinds of persecutions that Paul faces are the kinds of persecutions that he himself used to impose. But in that process, there was a bright light. There was a great voice. There was an intersection of Christ with his life. He heard the call of Christ and he heeded it. And that's how he became the Apostle Paul. Now, as he's telling this story, Festus goes, Wait a minute. Okay, stop. I see where this is going. Paul, you're nuts. Booong is what we would say. <laughs> Goggle. You're crazy, man. What do you think? You, you, but he does. He's not, he's not literally meaning you're insane or whatever because he knows how smart Paul is. He knows how educated Paul is, not only in the Jewish law but in Roman law. Paul is erudite and experienced. But he's like, you've gone too deep into this philosophy stuff. I mean, do you really think that in this short period of time, you think I'm going to become a Christian? You think I'm going to follow Jesus like you? Can you imagine after years of imprisonment, you're on the cusp of maybe getting out. There's a narrow opening that could be widened here. All you need to drive into that wedge is any kind of appeal that will appease these rulers. Instead, Paul is not ashamed to stand there and say, Honorable Festus, with respect, I am not crazy. I'm telling you the truth. You see, no one, no one can escape the truth. Are you afraid about what people will think of you as you confess Christ? Do you face a sense of uncomfortableness when you're talking about Jesus? Does having the name of Jesus on your lips in a secular environment make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? You're not alone in that, and there's a reason for that. But it's time to stand on the truth not just so that you can face opposition, but so that people who are imprisoned in the lies of the world can see the truth because when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And Jesus came so that we could be free. For this very purpose, I came to testify to the truth. Paul says, I am testifying to the truth. Agrippa also says, what do you think we're gonna believe? And Paul says, I wish that not only you, but every person in this courtroom would be just like me except for these chains. I think in that there is a witty recognition on Paul's part I'm not looking for you to be imprisoned, but there's also an awareness. You are imprisoned in a way you can't even see. I would like to see you free. Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice, and everyone in the entourage gets up. Okay, court adjourned. We've heard it. They take Paul out, but while they're still there, they look at each other and they say, Well, <laughs> he's nuts, but he's not guilty of anything. He he certainly doesn't deserve to die. He doesn't really even deserve to be in prison. In fact, listen to this. He could be free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. I love that. They don't say something like, he could be free if we weren't corrupt, unjust, illegal despots. No, he could be free if he wasn't so stupid to have appealed to Caesar. But you know what Paul is thinking? My mission to Rome, financed by the Roman Empire, Of course it will mean near death and almost certain destruction another shipwreck lays ahead for paul but paul doesn't die in that shipwreck in fact paul sees it coming in advance by his prophetic anointing and warns them about it and even when they don't believe him he says you better stay with me i saw my god and he told me we're gonna shipwreck but we won't die as long as you all stay with me because i'm with him and it's true and paul does make it to rome And it's probably while he is imprisoned in Rome that he writes to the church in Philippi and says, I want you to know, hear this now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, literally in the text there, he uses the Latin term, throughout the entire praetorium. This time, it's the complex where he is, probably in Rome, although this may be in Caesarea. We don't know exactly where. It's one of those times when he's in jail, and he's saying, I'm in chains for Christ. In other words, I'm already free, but I am willing to bear these chains in order that these people who are bound by darkness could see the light. That's like Jesus who, though he was God, didn't consider that freedom and that power something to be held on to, but instead lowered himself to the place of service so that he could go to a cross that was really meant for us to die the death that we should have died so that we could have the life that is in him. Yes, let's applaud that. Let's adore that, but let's remember there's a reason for that power to have been released so that it could be in you, so that you can face whatever troubles you face knowing that not only does Jesus know what your troubles are, but he has a purpose that can be fulfilled even through them. Because of my chains, because of my chains, Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You see, in other words, what Paul is saying is, God has privileged me to be a witness, not only to the world, but to the body. So that people who were timid about declaring their faith because there are real risks, have gotten over that fear because they have seen that the costs, though they are great, do not outweigh the glory of God that is at work in us when we simply follow patiently according to his purpose. God wants you to be like that. He wants you to be someone who in living your life in service to him, facing whatever it is that you face in that faithful path, become not only a witness to the world but an encourager to the body and a recipient of the power of the Lord for the purposes of God to the glory of the King. Lord, we bring our lives to you today and we see there's a lot in them that needs refining. We ask you to refine us by the fire of your spirit. Burn out of us those things that are not worthy of you and seal in us those things that are of you. Seal them in their strength, but release them also in the flow of life that they offer, that you offer to us as your people. Lord, wherever there is someone who maybe even literally is in a jail cell today or has been in the past or, heaven forbid, may find themselves in one in the future, I pray, Lord, that your voice would reach that one right now with your promise of help, hope, and purpose. I pray for anyone who is suffering persecution, maybe even within those who claim the name of Jesus, but who are standing as an opposition to the things of the Lord in that person's life. I pray that you would give them patience to persevere, courage to witness, but graciousness as well, to go forward in that attitude of Paul, in the attitude of Christ, according to your purposes and will. There's really a number of things that begin to swirl in my heart and mind, Lord, as I'm praying this prayer, and I think it's you saying, give a moment for people to hear me in the individuality of their circumstance. So we're gonna do that right now, just in quietness, lift your heart to the Lord, And open your ear to hear him speak to you about the trouble you've seen and the place that you're in. And let him bring his courage and encouragement, his correction and love into your heart. Jesus says, in this world, you will face many troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take his heart and let him take yours. Let his love fill you. Someone out there is really burdened by a weight of guilt. You feel so much shame. You feel that you can't even turn your face up to God because you are so embarrassed and ashamed to put your face in the glow of the light of his. And like the father that he is, he reaches down to you right now with his holy spiritual hands and just graciously lifting your chin up to him. He smiles on you and says, my beloved, I forgive you. I love you. I do not want to condemn you. I am here to help you and set you free. But you have got to trust me and give yourself to me. Now just do that. That's court speaking to you as a brother saying to you, do it. Just trust him. Just give yourself to him totally and let him embrace you because he loves you with an everlasting love and he's holding you right now with a grip so good that he will never let you go through it all. He will hold on to you. So now you hold on to him and declare his name and the God of peace will be with you. Amen.